0: Welcome to a shiny new podcast called Magical Match, a place to hear about real people with real stories around the important topic of stem cell donation and transplants. In each episode, I'll be chatting with donors, recipients, those in supportive roles, and people who have been affected by either a personal experience or through another's inspirational story. It is my hope that by opening the conversation around stem cell donation, we can inspire more people to sign up to the Stem Cell Register offering more hope to those in need. Today's special guest with me is teaching assistant and mum of two, Lynn Roberts. Lynn's daughter, Millie, received a stem cell transplant after a diagnosis of aplastic anemia. Hello, Lynn. Hello. Good evening. (laughs) Good evening to you. So take us back to the beginning of your journey, of your experience. You're a family of four and you're sort of going through life. And then what, what happened? what changed so
1: um it it was about christmas time last year um that things started to get really quite bad for milly she had been a little bit before that quite down quite anxious quite depressed which was very out of character for her we noticed that there were other symptoms coming up so she was very pale she was very very tired extremely lethargic um and we went to the doctors and we were we were asking the doctors you know what what could it be? And they were kind of saying, Well, it's lockdown, it's hormonal, it could be vitamin D deficiency. Mm. But they decided to do some blood tests. It was only after they'd done those blood tests and while we were waiting kind of in the interim that Millie started to get bruising, really quite bad bruising. So on her arms, mm. on her legs, no reason for it. it. Just did it just appear? It just... just appearing. Yeah. She hadn't she hadn't knocked them, hadn't done anything, just appearing. Um, And they were quite big, quite black bruises. So, again, we went back to the doctor and we said, this isn't right, something's not, something's going on. Um, So they did more blood tests. And um, literally, they did the blood test at 12 o'clock midday. And by 4 o'clock, we'd had a phone call from the doctor's surgery to say, you need to go to your local hospital tomorrow. Um, Your daughter needs a blood transfusion. And we were kind of... What what does that mean? <laughs> we were thinking, is yeah. she low in iron? Is it is it a deficiency of some sort? So we rocked up at the hospital the next morning and um, she had the blood tests again that morning before they were going to transfuse her because they need to m- match the blood and everything else. And as they did the test that morning, they literally said, we need to transfer you to Alder Hay. Um, something is not right here. And they blue lighted her to alder hay
0: see now all of this must have been a huge shock because it's (laughs) not the it's not the average thing that you expect is it when you're taking your child to to
1: the doctors and how old is millie so millie at that point was 16 she's now 17 right yeah and how did millie take it millie millie's quite laid back in in herself um so she's kind of like oh okay um that's that's all right yeah we'll go we'll go to the hospital she's still thinking at that point that you know it's a deficiency there's something you know she needs a bit of a top up of her blood maybe it's an iron level or something but i think mm-hmm. um i think she started to clock because i was in work that day because of covid only one parent could go anyway so dad had taken her to the hospital and they they took her in the ambulance and dad had to follow in the car and i think when she was in the ambulance she kind of got a bit of a inkling that something wasn't right and then when she got to the hospital, they'd taken her straight up to the Teenage Cancer Trust unit at the hospital. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like, a what, what's going on here? And obviously me and dad were there ready when she got there at the hospital. And at that point, um, we were told there's a suspicion that it could be leukemia and that they were gonna do some further tests. So she was quite um she took it quite well. She was kind of like, right, okay, if that's what it is, I'm in the right place. Um mm-hmm. me and dad weren't taking it quite so well, but that's just Millie. Mm-hmm. She's super strong anyway and she's very, you know, she's very down to earth and very, you know, okay, that's fine. We can do this. So at that point, she was okay.
0: <laughs> it's it's a strange place to be, isn't it? When you when you walk into a a cancer ward, you don't really know what to expect do you and you certainly well you don't expect to walk into a cancer ward in the first place when you're potentially thinking about you know iron deficiencies and things like that so I you know how was the feeling for for you to to see that you'd, you'd gone into this particular ward because it I can only imagine how shocking it might have been or how upsetting and worrying at this particular yeah.
1: point yeah, so we, we kind of, I think me and dad were kind of in a bit of a haze. We we knew we were in this ward, but we thought, oh, okay, it, it's just all to do with blood. So we hadn't quite clocked on at that point <laughs> um, until the doctor actually came in and said that that's what they were doing. We were kind of just, okay, we're in this ward and, you know, we we just got to wait for the doctor. We've got to wait and see. But we were very... At that point, thinking this is not a deficiency, this is not a normal, you know, it's not a, a lack of vitamin D, <laughs> you know, something's yes. something's going on here. And obviously, then you're kind of waiting. There's there's nurses flying around, getting beds ready, and you know, trying to show us. Bless them, we had this wonderful healthcare assistant who came straight away, and she's saying, you know, this is where you can make a cup of tea, and this is where you, the sluices and this is where you can do some washing. I was thinking. I don't know what you've just said to me. I can't remember the room you've just taken me into. Um, yeah. It's kind of, you're in that kind of in-between stage of, okay, I'm here, but I don't know why I'm here and what's going on and when are we going home?
0: <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah. You're not, well, you're not expecting it, are you? And therefore no. it's it's so overwhelming. And there, mm. when you go into these places and you're having this sort of experience, you are, presumably you are being given so much information Mm. it's 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 an awful lot to take in yeah um Millie got the diagnosis Mm. eventually of yeah aplastic anemia yeah can you can you tell us what aplastic anemia actually is and um, and what it means in layman's terms for everybody listening
1: yeah so aplastic anemia is a blood disease it's super rare um so two in a million people will have it it's basically bone marrow failure so your bone marrow is not producing any of the blood cells so it's not just focusing on red blood cells or white blood cells it's it's all of them so she she had a deficiency of red white and platelets and actually it's a life threatening blood disease under the cancer umbrella and they say that because although it's not a tumor or a malignant cancer it is diagnosed and it is treated in the same way as leukaemia or another type of cancer yeah so that's basically in a nutshell now it the causes of it there's two different types of aplastic anemia so there's acquired and there's inherited so yeah (laughs) can you can you explain what they what they are? yeah so acquired sounds something you come across or you, you yeah know. yeah it is so the acquired type is um there's a few different things that could cause it, so it could be exposure to radiation or chemotherapy. It could be exposure to toxic chemicals or pesticides, insecticides, things like that. um it could be due to a viral infection like a really bad viral infection that's just destroyed your blood cells. Apparently, you can get it in pregnancy. Now, I've not heard much about that. I think I'd have to look into that a bit more, but apparently you can. And then there's unknown factors, which is what actually Millie was diagnosed under unknown factor. There's also inherited, which is kind of a genetic thing. So I know a lot of children that we came across... Um, from other cultures as well had a genetic type right we were diagnosed with the unknown factor because she hadn't had exposure to anything in terms of radiation or anything like that and and it wasn't genetic when it come back from the tests so at that point we didn't know what had caused it
0: And have they been able to give you any further clues since? Not really.
1: Um, As a family, we kind of, we were aware that Millie had glandular fever about three years before any of these symptoms started to show. So we kind of thought, well, could it have been that that knocked her? Now, the doctors kind of said they weren't sure about that because it was so far in the past that they would have assumed that symptoms would show a lot sooner. However, right. they weren't ruling that out completely, but because it wasn't an obvious cause, she's still down as unknown for now.
0: Well, let's hope they find out what the what the cause mm. is. I mean, mm. you know, it's it's it, it sounds sort of an astonishing uh, situation to be in. And so, was this was it in the middle of treatment that, or, or how did they how did they start to treat Millie for this? Um, so the disease. day we
1: got there she had a blood transfusion because she had no blood cells. We were told at that point that she had 3% of the blood cells that she should have had in her body. That's what she had on the day we went in.
0: Can we can Th- we just stop there to try and try and think about that for a minute? She yeah. had 3% of yeah. the blood cells that she needs to survive mm. or to
1: live. Yeah. That were actually working. Yeah. Horrendous. I mean How she even was standing still or standing up, (laughs) I don't know. Um, Did, Did she feel, I mean, was she just feeling really tired? Yeah, she was really tired, really tired and very, very pale. Now, she's always been very pale. We always used to joke about it, to be honest, because she got into wearing makeup and doing makeup artist stuff And she could never get a foundation to match her complexion because she was so pale. But obviously, you know, we'd been to the doctors and had blood tests before and we just thought, well, it's just the way she is. And if you actually saw her now, her complexion is so much. She's got such beautiful pink skin now. It's unbelievable. Everyone mentions it now. But yeah, at that time, very, very tired, very, very down and anxious and very pale in hindsight when you realize when you're going through these sorts
0: of situations you realize especially when it comes to blood transfusions what a huge huge difference that makes mm. to somebody and how they look and how their skin changes and how their you know their mouth might change and go pinker and then mm. you th- and then it's that realization of oh now yeah, i can see that you're you pale for a different reason
1: yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah, it was. So she was she was treated with blood transfusions. Mm. Yeah, and then the next day she had a bone marrow biopsy. Right. That took about 10 days all in all for us to get the diagnosis. And the haematologist was kind of saying, well, it could be leukaemia or it could be this disease. And, and pretty much the treatment was at that point the same. So they just cracked on with giving her some different drugs to help her and uh you know trans- she was having transfusions twice a week at that point and they were doing blood tests quite a lot to try and help her
0: and was she in hospital all this time or was this a sort of trip home
1: and then back again so we were in for a couple of days while they gave her the transfusion and the biopsy then we went home and she was in twice a week to clinic um having right. her bloods tested and you know we were just waiting on results at that point as well so if, if she had her bloods done in the morning, then they'd say to us whether we needed to stay for a transfusion or go home. And pretty much most of the time it was you need to stay for either blood or platelets. And then it was about 10 days later when we got the, uh, the diagnosis that it was aplastic anemia.
0: I'm just pausing for a minute and just just trying to sit in your position receiving those sorts of diagnoses. So how did how did Millie take it if she, if you're happy to say how she took it or you know I mean
1: she was I think we were all very relieved we didn't at that point know what aplastic anemia was but mm. we were all relieved that it wasn't cancer at that point that it wasn't leukemia and that it was something different because we'd had friends and family members who had had cancer and it had been quite traumatic in the past so we kind of were you know we kind of breathed a little bit but then we were like mm. well okay what is this thing then and that's when we started to do a lot of research and a lot of looking up on different groups and different websites and we had a we were introduced to a bone marrow specialist nurse at Hey, who was just incredible she was just a lifeline to us because she was just she had the answer to everything <laughs> so she that's, was brilliant and it's
0: such a relief isn't it in those circumstances to not, to know there's somebody there that's that's available to answer those questions yeah yeah and what happened what happened following all of this so
1: over the next few months um we were still going twice a week her levels kept dropping so in between transfusions her levels were dropping quite significantly so she was becoming more and more dependent on transfusions in the run-up. Right. And it was at that point when they said, you know, we're looking at a bone marrow transplant here because there are other, other ways of treating it in some cases. But they said, you know, millies is such a significant um, diagnosis. There's different variations on aplastic anemia. So you can be aplastic anemia, you can be severe and very severe. And Millie was diagnosed as very severe aplastic anemia. And we were having more and more transfusions of both blood and platelets, and waiting for, you know, a go ahead for a bone marrow transplant. So at that point we were told that we could get Isaac, which is our brother, tested to see whether he would be a genetic match for a bone marrow transplant.
0: That's a wonderful suggestion. And, and, and how did that go? Because I'll tell the listeners that there's only a one in four chance of, of becoming a sibling donor, isn't there? There is. How did that go for Isaac? What's the age difference between, between the children?
1: There's just over three years difference between Isaac and Millie, but Isaac has complex special needs. So Isaac has autism, he has ADHD and he has OCD has his own difficulties really. So when he found out that Millie was poorly, he was distraught, they are very, very close. But he said at that point, if there's anything I can do, then just tell me. So we kind of spoke to Isaac and said, you know, we don't want to push you into doing this, but there is a chance that you could be a match. So he was like straight away, yeah, I want to do it. I want to be tested. Take me in, let me do it, which was great. But me and dad were also very aware that if it came back that he couldn't do it, that in itself would knock him. Because then he'd feel like he couldn't help his sister. Um. So he, he did. He went through all the genetic testing and unfortunately he wasn't the match.
0: It is a very emotional journey, yeah, to this one? Yeah, it was emotional. Mm-hmm.
1: It was emotional for him. Millie was kind of relieved because she'd kind of said to us, you know, great if he is a match, but... I don't want him to have to go through that because we kind of were aware of what that meant for a donor. At that point, we'd been told, you know, that they had to do certain things and go through certain procedures. And um, she said, I don't want Isaac to go through that because he would have found that really difficult with his additional needs as well. So she was kind of okay about it. Isaac was a little bit upset at first, but then we were told that the hospital were looking into the National Register to see whether we could get an unrelated donor. I think that's quite
0: a mark of um the love that siblings have for each other as well because they're both caring about each other so much mm. that they don't want yeah. they don't want to sort of harm each other they want to help each other and and do the best for each other but they also don't want them to go through anything that's that's traumatic for the other one so I mean that's it's lovely but it is it is hard in those situations isn't it mm. and so you're looking at a, a, an unrelated donor at this time and it is amazing to to realize that there are only i think it's 2% 2% everybody of the population in the UK on the stem cell register which is tiny where are the other 98% yeah
1: yeah i to be honest though when we when we first started on this we were kind of very very slightly aware that there was a register and we'd kind of heard a little bit that you could be a donor but we didn't know any details. So when this was mentioned to us, we were kind of like, well, how does that work? And what do they do? And how do you do this? And how do you become a member on a register? We, we just, because you've never been in that situation, you don't really know. And there isn't a lot of advertisement about it. There isn't a lot of information out there about it at the moment, which is, you know, hopefully something like this podcast is amazing to try and get the word out there. And I think as well, from speaking to people during and even after what what we've gone through this year people just didn't understand the procedure itself how do you donate and is it a painful thing do you have to have an operation is it a big you know is it a big commitment so I think maybe that's where the you know the 98% aren't sure or haven't heard or there's misconceptions there that just need clarifying.
0: Yeah, I think you're
1: right. And I think there is there is a, a level of
0: sort of concern and worry. And, and just because you don't know, you don't know how it feels to be in the situation. And while you don't know, it sort of doesn't matter does it and unless you're aware and then once you are aware you hear of all these things of it being a bit painful or it being a bit serious and a bit difficult but it's 90% of people that come along and have sign up to be a donor that end up if they are going to donate they donate through peripheral stem cell donation Mm. which is much much simpler and akin to sort of a blood donation I guess. Absolutely
1: yeah 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 because we were we were kind of thinking well how do they get this bone marrow into Millie? (laughs) but it was it was literally just like a transf a blood transfusion it was it was incredible yeah it was it was brilliant
0: and how did you feel at the time of receiving the news that you'd got a a
1: donor for Millie I mean well it was just incredible really because because we were told we were told that she was going to the national register and we were like okay well what because obviously we hadn't heard about it very much and we knew that not many people had signed up at that point We were kind of like, what is the chances of her getting this? And um, we we were told then that actually there might be a good chance because of who she is, her age, her ethnicity, that actually she had quite a good chance of getting a match of some sort. And they kind of go through levels with the matches. We were looking for a 10 out of 10 match. And they wanted no less than an eight out of 10 match. So we were just thinking, oh, gosh, like this is this is going to be, you know, a nightmare trying to find somebody. But actually it was it was kind of like a month later. So it wasn't actually that long in the in that time. It felt like forever. We were kind of phoning every couple of days saying, have you heard anything yet? Have you heard anything yet? But it was about a month later that we were told that we had two 10 out of 10 matches, which was just incredible. We kind of like all looked at each other like, did the doctor just say that? Like, is that what? (laughs) So then it it was kind of a, it was kind of a, the consultant kind of said, so now we get to choose which one's the best. Um, And they were looking at kind of the genetic makeup and the immunity history and different things that they look at, because they're just amazing, to see which would be the best, one that would suit Milly, so it was just incredible that we got those matches so quickly
0: and so then she's going through a stem cell transplant and and mm. were you in older hay for the whole entirety or did you um, No, so older hay don't
1: actually do the blood transplant themselves um right. so what we had to do was move up to Manchester which during Covid times was difficult but we did it so we moved up to Manchester we were told we might be there for up to three months So me and dad moved up there with Millie and at the time it was kind of one of us could stay in the unit with her and one of us could stay close by. So dad kind of stayed in a travel lodge for a few nights and then fortunately the hospital referred us for a place at the Ron Mack house, the Ronald McDonald house, which is just right next to the hospital. And we got a room there that then we could swap in and out of and dad could have a few nights in the hospital. So That was just incredible. So yeah, we were up in Manchester and um, we were kind of there for about a week, 10 days before the transplant. And that's when Millie got her preconditioning treatment. So what's conditioning? Conditioning is basically getting her body ready to receive the stem cells. So they had to wipe out Millie's system and kill off anything that was in her system that could possibly reject the stem cells that were being donated. So she had a course of chemotherapy. Which knocked out all the blood cells, all the bone marrow that was left in her body, and any obviously it, that takes out all your immune system as well. Mm. Um, so all those lovely childhood jabs that she had, and all the kinds of immunity that she built up over the years from having maybe chicken pox or you know anything else that was all lost during the conditioning. And then what they do is when you're having a stem cell transplant, the days before minus days so we got there at like day minus 10 and then on day zero it was transplant day and then any day after transplant day is a plus day so we're now on day plus 194 <laughs> so 194 yeah, 194
0: <laughs> and my goodness me, that's amazing. Yeah. And, um, how How is Millie doing right now?
1: At this moment, she's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. So she was in the other day. She had her Hickman line removed two weeks ago. Her Hickman line was that was installed last June. And that was for her to have all her blood tests done out of all her medication went into it. Stem cell transplant was done through that as well. And obviously, while she was in hospital, all her meds were on lines, so everything was infused. But obviously, now she's home, um, she's on normal tablets, so there was was none of that now. Um, And that came out two weeks ago. Some of her medicines now have been reduced. Her levels have all gone up. Her levels are all kind of where they should be. And her immune system is slowly rebuilding. So she's doing really, really well, really well.
0: It's so amazing what can happen and how it can, having a stem cell transplant can benefit people in these situations Mm. because you are looking for that special person to step up and agree to do something which is you know it's a decision it's a choice isn't it but it's it's also you know you have the potential to save somebody's life and to, to really help them and you know hearing about Millie and how well she's doing now it just it, it must be just so wonderful what would you say to somebody who was thinking about signing up
1: oh just just do it it's incredible I mean we don't know a lot about our donor because they don't tell you that at the beginning. All we know is it's a wonderful lady who lives in Germany who's around the age of 35. And hopefully one day we'll get to say thank you to her. Hopefully one day we'll be allowed to know who she is if she chooses to, you know, open that up. But you know, it's just the most simple thing to, to become, to get yourself on the register, all you need to do is a cheek swab. So it's easier than a lateral flow test. So much easier than that and a lot more comfortable, I've been told. It's just, it, that's it. You send that away, they put you on the register and you just sit and wait for somebody to call you. And honestly, for that tiny bit of doing that to be the hope that you can be for a family or a child that's going through this, it's just incredible. I know our donor had to have a little bit of preparation so she went through a few tests, nothing too invasive, and then a few days before, there is um there's a medicine that they have called GCSF, which basically just makes your bone marrow produce a few more extra cells for those few days in readiness for them taking them. Now I've been told that that can be a tiny bit uncomfortable in that you might feel a little bit achy, but they say it's no worse than having like a a bad cold or very 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 light flu a little bit achy for a couple of days while your body's kind of working over time to produce those cells. But it is just like donating blood. It is, it, it, like you said, it's a peripheral donation and it's like giving blood. Our donor did it the morning of our, the day before and the morning of our stem cell transplant. She did it in two, two goes. And then it was flown over from Germany that day. And, and it was in Millie's body by eight o'clock that night and it's just a miracle. It's just incredible that somebody can do that and totally transform somebody else's life. It's just incredible.
0: I think that is just such a wonderful testament to the people out there that are thinking about it, to your daughter, to your son as well, for going through all that that he's been through as well. And the fact that, you know, your your family have gone through such an extraordinary year and now this has happened and it's all thanks to somebody who is a complete stranger Mm. who did a cheek swab that took a minute, two minutes, popped it in the post and then had a phone call that they might be a match. I mean, I think it's one in 800 the chance of of actually becoming a donor once you signed up throughout the whole of your life what an incredible incredible thing to do I'm just thinking now that the aat.org.uk they are the aplastic anemia trust is that
1: right yes they are yeah they're incredible so it's run by a volunteer by volunteers and the fella that actually set it up had aplastic anemia himself. And he set this up because obviously nobody else knew a lot about it when he was going through it. And it was actually through them we Googled aplastic anemia and this came up. And we found out a lot of information. They do incredible things. They've got booklets, they do little storybooks to explain it to the children. They do a lot of fundraising and awareness. They've got a Twitter page, a Facebook page, they've got parents who, you know, parent pages so you can chat to other parents. And we we met this incredible family on there, Connor and Rachel and Max, who had been through this just a few months before Millie got her diagnosis. And they were incredible. They kind of messaged us straight away and said, listen, we're on this journey too. We're a few months ahead of you. Use us, talk to us, rant at us, cry with us, ask us questions, whatever you want to do, we're here. And that was just incredible because all the way through our last year, They've literally been in touch with either me or Millie's dad at least weekly, if not every other day. And um, it's just incredible how people you know, can find other people to chat to and to find information about. But yeah, the AA Trust, actually tomorrow, the day after this recording, is the Aplastic Anemia Trust Awareness Day. So there's a big campaign. Um, it's called the Super Rare Campaign. And they just want to raise awareness about what aplastic anemia is and also about stem cell transplants and how you can come onto the register. So, um, so it's amazing that we're actually doing this tonight and then tomorrow is the awareness day. That's just incredible. Yeah. I think it just it
0: just goes to show that you even in the di- most dire of circumstances you can find huge support you know when you're standing in a ward and you don't, you're not quite sure what who to talk to or, or mm-hmm. who to turn to even it's it's lovely that you've got charities that do step up that do know yeah. about these these things that are so incredibly incredibly rare mm-hmm. you know and to be able to give you that support and also obviously you're talking about Connor there with his family. And his experience, it it matters hugely, I think, to anybody who's going through this sort of uh, set of circumstances in the family to be able to find other families who know exactly how it feels to be able to keep you going. Mm. Um, because it can be quite a long journey, but it turns out Millie was only in hospital. She was supposed to be in there for three to six months, was it? And she yeah. came out quite a bit sooner (laughs)
1: yeah incredible yeah so we we had the the most amazing team um we had the best pediatric consultant who is a very is a specialist in in this area in bone marrow transplant and he was looking after Millie and um yeah initially when we went over we'd been warned you're probably going to be over there about three months and that's if everything goes well you could be over there maybe six months if you know she starts to get infections and you know, maybe has, you know, a bad reaction to chemo or whatever else. So we were kind of, we we moved everything but the kitchen sink up to Manchester with us. We had a carload of everything <laughs> to take with us. And um, yeah, day plus 19, we were told, you can go home. Her levels are fine. She's doing great. There's no reason to keep you here any longer. You, you'll you be coming back to clinic a few times a week, but actually you can go home. And we were like, no, what? <laughs> Because actually while you're there, you're in this little safety net, you're in this little safety bubble and you've got nurses coming in to do OBS every three hours and give you the medicines and, you know, you can ask all these questions. Is that quite right? Is that quite right? Why is she doing that today? What's this going on? And then when they said you can go home, we were like, what? (laughs) It just didn't sound right to us. And we kind of spoke to the nurse and said, we're not actually that comfortable with this because we don't know what we're doing and she said, oh, you know, don't worry. You know, we'll go through everything with you before you go. It'll be fine. It will be fine. And uh, me and dad even said to the consultant, you know, can you not just charge us over to the Ron Mack house and we'll stay there for a week with her. And then at least we can run over the road again if there's an issue. Yeah, <laughs> and he was so like, that reassurance. <laughs> yeah. But he was like, do you know what? You're going to be fine. And Millie is fine. And, you know, he said she's, she's breaking all the records her levels are going up, she's not had any, she didn't have any sickness, apart from day one of chemo, where she felt really rough, the rest of the time, absolutely fine, she'd come off all her line drugs, she was on tablets, she was eating, drinking fine, her levels were coming up, her platelets were coming up, I mean, they were just, from the day that we left on day plus 19, she's never had another blood transfusion, she's never needed one, She's never had another platelet transfusion. She hasn't needed one. And her bone marrow is just working really well now. So obviously the team are incredible and we, we we just can't thank them enough. They're still seeing her a couple of times a week at the moment, just to, you know, to keep that contact with us and to keep testing the yeah. blood and just make sure everything's okay. But yeah, we're home and we're pretty much, although we've had to shield a little bit, Millie's gone back to college with a lot of precautions in place. I'm back at work, which is working in a school with hundreds of children was a bit daunting for me because when you've been in a bubble of you, your daughter and nurses and that's it, yeah. that's, um, that's quite daunting, going back to a school of hundreds. But actually, yeah, she's done incredibly well it's just it's just
0: amazing it's amazing listening to your story and to hear all of these sorts of situations that happen it's just like this big storm that comes along shakes everybody up a bit and then and that's a huge huge understatement mm. and and then when you do feel you know, the, the, obviously the reassurance that you were given by the team at the hospital mm. is it goes a huge way to, to giving you that confidence yeah. to be able to leave the hospital and to be able to go home as a family and try to get back to some sort of sense of normality. And I think it's amazing that, you know, Millie's gone back to, to college and you're going back to work. it's it's a really really positive thing and this has all happened because somebody signed up to the stem cell register in this set of circumstances absolutely yeah which is just wonderful so if you're listening to this people and you are considering signing up um just to say that anthony nolan take people from 16 to 30 and if you are little older and you're 17 to 55 that's um, DKMS you can go to the DKMS website and uh, and find out more there find out if you're eligible please sign up this is why we're doing this podcast
1: (laughs) yeah absolutely
0: and if anybody wants to follow your journey would you like to say what the you're on instagram aren't you
1: yeah we are because um one thing that connor and his family had done was set up an instagram page and we were able to follow that and read the story and kind of see what you know what their journey looked like so we thought that might be a good idea for us to do for other families to follow as well so instagram our instagram handle is at millie so m-i-double-l-y dot s and then journey so at millie's journey and it, that kind of tells the story so far and hopefully we'll be able to keep posting there of how how well she's doing. But it just gives a little bit of an insight into the journey that we've taken, but also gives people a chance that if they want to ask us questions, write comments on there, then we will get back to them. Um, because we know that it can be a really daunting, terrifying experience. And, you know, if we can help in the way that we were helped, then that's just amazing.
0: And that's that's absolutely wonderful. I think this brings our episode very nicely to a close. It's a very positive story and we wish Millie and your family all well and continued good health. So I'm very grateful to my guest, Lynn Roberts, for giving up her time today and sharing her story with us. I hope you found today's conversation both interesting and inspiring. As a sparkling new podcast, we are looking for guests to share their inspirational stories. And if you have one, we would love to hear from you. You can follow us on Twitter at at magicalmatchpod and get in touch there if you'd like to join me to share your stem cell story. And if you've enjoyed listening to today's episode, do like and subscribe to the podcast. And if you have time, write us a review. We'll be back with a new episode very soon. In the meantime, do consider signing up to the Stem Cell Register. You could be someone's magical match. Thank you so much for listening. Magical Match Podcast is an O.B. Hive production, originally inspired by a conversation with Andy Mitchell and other like-minded individuals. Magical Match Podcast is hosted and produced by Ginny Walker with audio production by James Walker and music by Cobalt Ocean.